Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Alex Neem. He's an exit specialist and MIA advisor, and he specializes in the digital world, digital agencies, B2B consulting, software as a service. He spent a lot of time in that industry. Thank you for being on the show today, Alex. Hey, thanks. Great to be here, Ron. Cool. So I always joke around and like this, the ongoing joke is you were born and now you ended up on a show about M&A. How did you end up here? Can you fill out the gap in between? Can you give us your origin story? Yeah. So, well, there's a definitely a special DNA strand. I'm just kidding. None of us are born knowing this, right? So we kind of learn it along the way. Some from mentors, some of it from, as I jokingly call it, the school of hard knocks. Um, so I'll keep this as, as relevant and as brief as possible. So I have a technical background. I went to school, got a degree in computer science. And then the reason I start there is there's, it's actually going to come full circle 30 years later. I was a programmer for several years and was really burnt out, right? And I used the money I saved up, did some consulting, saved that money, then started an IT consulting company. Sold that company for mid-seven figures and then one did more consulting. And then about five, seven years ago, I had more and more clients who wanted to get my help in exiting. So I would help them grow the business and then get it ready for exit. And we handed up to somebody to actually market the business, connected with buyers. And I noticed that part kept getting dropped. And I wondered, like, well, what's going on here? And my clients come back and say, well, I didn't work out. And I said, well, what happened? We did all the packaging, prepping the business. They said, well, because they're a party that we actually worked with after that. They couldn't understand the nuance of our business or they didn't know how to talk to the buyers and things like that. So I said, wow, man, like, it seems like that's when the money's made, right? Like when you exit, because there's a, that's where most of the money, you don't really realize it until it actually exits. And so then about two or three years ago, I started focusing more and more on the actual market of the business to buyers, right? So meaning of connecting with different types of buyers, acquirers, family offices, private buyers, PE firms. They all, each one of those has different nuances, and we can get into a little bit later how to pro, how they look at acquisition a little bit differently. So that's what we're focusing on now. Now, this is where my tech background came full circle. At the time, I was burned out as a programmer, and I'd been a chief technical officer, and I got so burned out, I don't want to do anything technical. I mean, I do not want to do it. Marketing is where it's at, right? And then it's now interesting. My life kind of comes back, right? 30 some years later, I say, wait a minute, my background being a programmer and actually being a CTO, it's giving me a huge, huge advantage, which is why I focus on those verticals, right? Digital agencies, B2B consulting companies, and there are subtle differences between those two. SaaS companies. I've written six books. My second book published, oh my gosh, way back in early 2000, was one of the very first books about SaaS as a business model, right? So I understand programming and tech at a much deeper level than say most folks in my field. And then in software companies as well. So when I talk to somebody, I assure them, say, I've been where you're at. 
I know what you're going through. I've ran my own companies. I've sold companies. I bought companies. I've advised companies. So I've pretty much sat all corners of the table, for lack of a better word. And my tech background really helps a lot because when you work with digital centric businesses, they're very, very different. These are what I call predominantly high cash flow businesses, but like I said, most people in this field, they know more what I call low cash flow and high asset, right? Most people that do what I do, they come from that world, the brick and mortar world, which is very, very valuable, but it's a very different, very, very different set of financials and set of dynamics. That's kind of like the last 30 years. It's compressed in two minutes there. It's interesting. We both have a similar backgrounds. I came from the tech world, was in the military, doing tech stuff for the military, for intelligence. And then got out with the, with the civilian world from defense contracting to actual the tech world, ran some of the mm -hmm. biggest websites on the planet and got burned out, decided I just don't like computers, right? My mm -hmm. problem with computers is they're hyperlogical. If something's broken on a computer, it's either the idiot that programmed it or the idiot sitting on the other side of the keyboard, right? Rarely, rarely is the computer itself the problem. There are logic flaw chips and there's some things out there, but you as a consumer would never see it most of the time. It's either the programmer messed something up, or you're using the software totally wrong or whatever. On the other side, I got burned out. I decided I didn't want anything to do with it. One got a master's degree in marketing. Actually, I started my master's degree in technical management. And about right before I get to the capstone courses in my MBA, decided I just didn't want to do it. That's when it hit the realization. It's like, I don't want to be in tech anymore. So I walked into the school advisors. Look, I think I'm going to drop out. And they're like, why? You only got to take your capstone course. It's like, yeah, I just don't want to do tech anymore. And that's the path I'm on. She goes, well, you're, what do you like to do? So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm probably start something on my own. Now, they didn't give me the time of day, but I found out I really enjoyed the marketing stuff. So I finished my mm -hmm. MBA in marketing. And while I was in school, I met my wife now of 15 plus years, not at school. <laughs> but the whole thing was, was like, we, we followed a similar path. And here I am back full circle where I'm yeah. building, buying and doing website stuff, right? Because that's just something that meets what I'm looking for right now. It's mobile. I can take it with me. It's like you said, it's low asset base, high cash flow, especially in the content world. I need a couple of writers, a couple of SEO guys, and it's not even high employee requirement required for right. most of it. You can run this pretty significant content related revenue business on a handful of people located anywhere in the world. It does take a while to explain it. For me, I got bit by the travel bug. I've been very fortunate. I've been in 20, 30 countries. We're actually doing this interview while I'm on the road. I've been at Airbnb attending a conference. I love going to conference and mastermind meeting amazing people. So I had one deal where the buyer, the buyer was in the U.S., but a different part of the U.S. I'm in the U.S., but a different area. The seller's in Australia. Now, I never met the buyer. I never met the seller. The seller never met the acquirer. None of us ever met. None of us actually we didn't were within a thousand miles of each other. And the whole deal was still closed. Right. And yep. people are just stunned when they hear that. It's like, well, they wired several million dollars. They never met the buyer. The buyer never met the seller. Nope. So that's one of the attractive things about it. it. Completely it opens up a tremendous amount of opportunities. Because now, you know, it sounds kind of cliche, but we truly live in a global economy. So that's one of the reasons I like this, because it, it opens up tremendous, a much larger pool of buyers and sellers. And so that way there's a lot more opportunity for actually making the deal happen. If you work predominantly with, again, brick and mortar businesses, and this is a pretty broad statement, but more often than not, you're much more limited to a local, a much a regional buyer. Not until you get to like the tens of millions, at that point, you're more like a regional or national chain, right? That doesn't apply. But for the most part, if you have a, even a multi-million dollar brick and mortar business, 99%, I'd say nine out of 10 more 
times, the buyer is going to be somebody locally or regionally. It's unlikely it's going to be an international buyer because there's just too many unknowns. They can't review the business from afar. So that's what it's just my lifestyle because I still have to travel. It says something. It's a testament to your ability to get deals done, too, just because there is an element that is totally lost when we're doing everything on Skype. I refer to it as the talking head. Like when we're doing talk, talking head deals, where all you see is from the second button up, you lose a lot of that. Like there's multiple senses. There's sights, hearing, sound, smell, visual. There's even mm-hmm. like you can pick up on when you're with side by side with another human being, you can actually pick up on their mood and vibration almost. There's mm-hmm. a sense of being around somebody. You lose a lot of that online. And to be mm-hmm. able to still get a deal done when all, and a lot of people, they don't get this. If you're new in this space and you think this is a numbers game, uh, I'll dispel that myth right here and now. It's a people's game, right? You've got to build rapport. You've got to work with other people, find out what they're trying to what they're trying to achieve and get them there. On the first call that we do, we're actually, because I do a lot of pre-screen on behalf of my client. I represent the seller most of the time. On the first call where you know, the buyer and the seller meets, I always break the ice saying, okay, the purpose is called, because you know, they've already seen the numbers at that point that like you said they've had a chance to review. That's fairly pretty dry, right? I mean, there's usually some question, well, why is this that? So I usually handle all that on behalf of the seller. And on the first call, we get the buyer and the seller again. I was telling them, say, the purpose of this call is to see if we get along. Because if we don't get along, there's no way this is going to work. I mean, you may think the numbers are great. It's a phenomenal deal. The money's all there. But like you said, they can't get along during a one-hour call. There's a transition that has to happen, right? When they hand the business off, they can't get along for like 60 minutes. There's no way any semblance of a smooth transition is going to happen. So that kind of breaks the ice and knock on wood, right? As we say in the U.S. So far, that hasn't happened yet because I've done it fairly thorough before we actually get it. The last thing you want to do is get on a call and say, oh my God, I did not like that guy. Where'd you find that? You know, so and so forth. Right? I mean, can't believe they said some of the stuff that they did, right? So you're right. It's mm-hmm. a very much a people person. It's a very, very much a people business and you have to be able to read people and find out what, what makes them tick and what's important to them. Yeah, my thing when on the first call is always... A lot of times I'll even come right out and say, hey, what I'm trying to do on this call is let's figure out where you're trying to get to. Like, what did you build? I'm fascinated by that. Like, I'm really fascinated by what did you build? Why did you build it? And more importantly than anything is where are you trying to get to? What's your end goal? And if I can help you get there, then that's awesome. And if I can't, I probably know somebody can and I'll refer you for it out. But at this point, because a lot of times I'm like, if you just break the ice that way, a lot of mm-hmm. times it cuts down that the ego thing where I built this. Can you really afford to buy it? Well, I really don't know the value of it at this point. What I'm really doing at this point of the conversation is, do I like you? Do I like what you built? And are your goals achievable and achievable by me? Or do I need to bring somebody in that can help you achieve your goals? Right? Exactly. Yep. I have one guy. He's like, well, I'm not exactly sure you can afford what I've built. I was like, Okay, I didn't think we we're at that point in this conversation yet, but I promise you, no matter what you build, I know people that can afford it. What we're trying to figure out right now is where you're trying to get, right? I may not be your end buyer. If you're telling me you've got a, if your price tag is 100 million and it's worth it, I can't cut that check right now. I promise you that. But I know how to, I know how to put you in contact with people that buy that type of stuff. I've interviewed over 100 people at this point. I've got a pretty good network of knowledgeable of people who will buy anything. We can put you into, into touch with somebody that can get this done. And he's mm-hmm. like, all right, well, we can continue then. But anyway, let's jump in with why should somebody sell, right? When's the right time? How do people know when like, to pull that trigger and go, I probably should look at selling this thing? Yeah, so that's a that's as much a personal, it's a, as much an emotional decision as it is a financial one, right? So that's something that you really want to do not underestimate the emotional impact on this. Because some people actually have an identity thing, which we'll get to in a second. 
So it's really like one of the biggest mistakes I've seen people make is they say, well, I'm still having a great time. I'm going to sell this thing when I'm tired, when I'm burnt out. And then I tell them, say, ah, you've already lost a million bucks because they're dependent on the size of the business. I've seen, we just, for example, we just have a client sell their digital agency. They do paid Facebook ads for a very particular vertical. By the way, sometimes I have to intentionally be vague because I'm under so many NDAs, it's not even funny. Right. So we'll just say one particular vertical, but it, I can say it is a paid agency, right? They run Facebook ads for a very specific niche. niche. And so then what happened was, the business, had they came to me even six, nine months ago, we would have gotten an extra million dollars. And at the time, they think, well, things are going great and everything. And then what happened was they got distracted and then the business kind of faltered. And as the business kind of doing, kind of declined, so I'm kind of burned out. Maybe I should sell this. We managed to sell it, like the business, but I said, we've gotten probably an extra million dollars for it. So what I tell people is like, sell it when it's got momentum. Because a buyer, there's two words I want the listener to consider. It's called about risk management, Right. To a buyer, they have a certain risk risk range, parameters, what color, whatever you want, right? When it goes outside that, they're a lot less likely to do a deal. Every acquired buyer's got a certain risk tolerance they want to deal with, right? VCs have very high risk tolerance because they're speculative. P companies kind of middle of the road, private equity, a private buyer, probably a little bit less than that. So what does that mean? Well, if your business is declining, you're only going to be able to sell it to the most adventurous buyers. Probably people don't want to buy distressed businesses, and those rarely ever pay top dollars. So when you look at selling the business, you want to figure out, okay, if I'm running this, why still be enjoying this a year from now, two years from now? If you get any sense you're not, you probably want to start thinking about exiting. The ideal window is 6 to 12 months from where you think it's going to peak for you. Not necessarily where the business is going to peak, right? The business should still have a lot of growth opportunities. But if you feel like in six to 12 months, I may not enjoy this as much, then you may probably want to do that. By the time you say, man, I'm really tired, I'm burnt out, that already happened six months ago. You're just now experiencing, right? It's kind of like it's been building up and you don't realize you've been slowly sabotaging it, meaning that you probably didn't press on the gases, the foot on the gas as much. I'm sorry, put the foot on the gas pedal as much and things like that. So the business, without realizing it, was already performing a little bit less than optimal. So I would say that some of that is a little bit introspection. And then some of that is also, of course, life events, right? I've had situations like in this one case, the one I just told you about where we could have got an extra million. One of the two founders started another business that took off and he found that a lot more excitement is the business. So therefore he wasn't contributing as much to this business. There were two partners, right? So the two partners were still very amicable, but it was clearly that this other partner who was very a significant contributor to the business was already spending way much more time over here. And so because of that, the business plateaued and actually started declining. We still found a buyer, but like I said, we ended up selling for a much, a much lower amount than we could have gotten just even six to 12 months earlier. I see that a little bit more than I would have originally expected to, meaning either one of the partners or even the founder himself, they started mm-hmm. a side gig or a sideline, sometimes even semi-related to their business. Mm-hmm. Like they're a marketing agency and they were really seen a missing as far as a piece of software they really could use they built that out and then somebody Mm -hmm. else to ask to use it and the next thing you know they're selling that i'm thinking of a particular one guy in particular but his software company that he created for marketing agencies was making more money than his agency was and now he's ready to sell the agency thing right i was like okay well first of all it's gonna be a little hard to sell because you want to keep every you wanted to keep all his employees and just sell the agency because he slowly replaced his agency employees with software coders and he's got a couple creative guys around, but the agency's struggling on the other side. I was like, well, you've already gutted it. He just didn't see that he'd already gutted it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that, 
These are probably like, I would say, I just want to put a caveat on it. These are more, I would call cash flow buyers, like private mm -hmm. equity, private investors. They typically buy cash flow. VCs, it's a totally different world. Unless you ask me specifically about it, I probably can refrain from talking because those folks tended to make more speculative investments. And then when I tell people, say, well, I want to sell my company to a VC fund. I'm like, well, the business doesn't have enough growth opportunity for a VC. And they rarely look at financial performance. I mean, even now it's more concerned than it used to be, but... For the most part, most of the buyers we're going to be talking about are family offices, private buyers, and PE companies. So, and those tend to look at, they, they tend to have a certain well-known parameters that they operate under. So what are some of the, like, we talked a little bit before the show, there's a lot of expensive mistakes you can make. You already talked about the declining performance and the million dollar mistake is selling it mm -hmm. when you're tired. Are there other very expensive mistakes you can make in the exit process? So the first one I would say, well, the other one is not having very clean financials, right? Now, when you're running a business day-to-day, -day, your financials are probably sufficient for you to make day-to-day -day decisions. But when you look at exiting, an acquirer is going to probably ask for certain metrics or reports that you're probably not used to compiling. And that's really eye-opening, right? I just got a business under online. I was really very recently here, so this is very relevant. So these folks, they optimize the business more for their lifestyle. Right. I don't mean just reducing the tax basis. We can get to that. That's recasting. That could be addressed. But they built the business. And again, this is another agency example. They built the business so that way they didn't want to have as many customers. So they only wanted, like, if the customer basically, and again, this is a business philosophy, right? There's a point to this. An agency, one of these key metrics is churn. Same thing with a SaaS, right? Meaning, like, how many people can you retain? This particular business just philosophically, did not want to basically say, if somebody's going to churn, downsell them. They said, well, look, they're going to go, just let them go. Well, even though they managed to extract a lot, a fair amount of money while the client is a client, the way it reflects itself is the duration is fairly short. For them, they would try to have more money in a shorter window than a longer amount of money over a slightly longer period. Well, some buyers kind of view that as high churn, you see? So even though they're highly profitable and it fitted their philosophy to an acquirer, it looked like a red flag, right? So now we have to talk through that. So look, if you're buying the company and you don't, and you're okay, because the rationale with, with the owner was like, well, if we have to hold on to them, we have to hire more customer service manager. And for them, they wanted very thin staff. To an acquirer, they may be okay with having more customer service managers, right? So account management and whatnot. And so for them, it was, we had to kind of get them to see eye to eye on that. They said, your approach will definitely work. If they're about to churn, then certainly offer them a lower a lower price option, right? And so that's another thing right there is kind of then not understanding what a buyer values or, or what is considered high risk for them, right? So this is not necessarily a tangent. It's related to what we're talking about here. When I talked to a lot of the folks that I work with, I said, do you have an ideal client profile? They said, of course. Okay. Do you have an ideal acquirer profile? It's like, what the hell is that? It's like, well, think about this, right? That when you sell a company, that's the ultimate sale. It's the equivalent, the equivalent of like 10, 20, maybe 50 times the size of your normal transaction. Does the standard make sense that you at least have some idea of what that acquirer looks like? And there's, by the way, there's not one type of acquirer. There's like for an agency and software size company, it's usually three to five profiles. So I said, there's different types of profiles here. So we need to know, or at least have a sense of what they are. When I sold my company, I had a reasonably good idea. At the time, it was by accident. I just kind of, 
I managed to reverse engineer some of it. And in hindsight, I actually figured out something that years later, I figured out how to actually systematize it. But the point is like, if you don't understand the acquire and what they value or what they consider risky, it's a lot harder to go into the conversation. This is one of the reasons why Grizzle being self-serving, I tell people that it helps to work with somebody who's been there before. Because if you only have one type of ideal buyer, right? You've limited yourself now to potentially a four or five other types of buyers. And if you don't know what these other type of buyers value or you know what they consider risky, you don't know how to talk to them, right? So in this case, oh yeah, we basically have this real high margin, everything. They're like, well, yeah, but your churn is high. But yeah, but it's so that's the one thing that can really could just make the whole thing just if not derail the deal, add a tremendous amount of friction to the deal. So now we're having to explain things like that, which we're working through. So that's another one right there. And a related point to that, and this actually happened less than six months ago, a client of mine, there's like a $3 million exit approximately. They held back about $350,000 into closing. Now, fortunately, they didn't revise the valuation. They just say that our, this company, this is an investment fund. They actually use a third-party due diligence company. And the due diligence company couldn't confirm a certain amount of EBITDA. In earnings before taxes. And so what happened was then said, well, because we can't substantiate this, the OI was written with this particular EBITDA range in mind, because we can't substantiate this amount. And they didn't definitely didn't want to revise the deal downward because they knew that would pay pretty much unreal to derail the deal with the seller. They said, hold back roughly about $350,000. And they use a trailing 12 month moving averages, right? The moment the trailing 12 month averages hits the number that we originally put the LI under, we're going to release that. So I know in some of the camps out there, I would call them like the build a sell and some of the other guys out there, they have their own camps on how to prepare a company for exit. They recommend changing the business model to maximize the exit. So in your case, like that, what sounded like it was a creative agency. So I did a marketing roll up and we've seen that exact scenario you gave us earlier about they had a high churn. They were a highly creative agency. They love doing the highly creative work. But when mm-hmm. there was time to do maintenance, like run the ad for months on end and buy media and stuff, they just kind of like tapered off on that. They just mm-hmm. wanted to focus their, them and their team. They wanted to focus on creating the really cool creatives. So mm-hmm. once that stuff's worked done, it's piecemeal, right? They do a job, they mm-hmm. get it done, the creative's done, and then mm-hmm. they don't get any more money from that customer. So those dollars are worth less than, okay, you get the creative done and you actually have a media buying arm over here that places that media, maintains that media, and you get ongoing revenue for so long as they run your ad. Do you mm-hmm. recommend the business model changes for some of these guys in the event that, like, look, if you're planning on exit, I know you do X, Y, and Z, but we probably should add in A, B, and C too, just because it's going to really drive your rev- the exit value of the company. It depends, right? I work with... I'm 55. I suspect you're probably within that age range to run. I work with folks are a lot of time they're late 20s and maybe up to their 30s. So I'm not working with the classic baby boomer that are like giving that for 25, 30 years because I tell people digital agencies and SaaS, they're not that old. I mean, this is industry for crying out loud, right? So a lot of the a lot of the folks I work with are in their 30s, which is more often than not. So for them, a transition like that can take a while. And so a six to 12 month window for some of these folks is an eternity. So you have to kind of balance it, right? Because then, because we get into this thing, well, we have to kind of do all of this. While it's very doable, if their time frame is such a good thing in terms of months, or in some case weeks even, more often than months or quarters, to do that sometimes not overnight. And so they rather sell it knowing that it's possible. Because for many of them, 
I jokingly call it like, it's like a, I don't know what you call it, like we're at a midlife crisis. I think this is kind of like, a, I don't know, I don't want to say anything. Well, I, there's just a term I'm trying to think of here. It's almost like a, what is it, a 30-year crisis? I don't know what it is. A lot of these folks, like the, the three to five year, it's considered kind of like the, I know what it is. It's a five-year itch. Right. It's a three-year itch. Roughly people, folks at this age get restless. They say, well, I'm on the bigger things, right? And so I have to balance. I've been saying, man, if I ask them to do this for a year, what are the odds that they can actually do this long enough to even implement these changes? Now, if I feel like they, they're willing to do that, then yes, I do recommend that. In many cases, I recommend them actually inject what I call, there's different scales, right? Like at the bottom, I recommend them injecting more what I mean by that, like really focus and doubling down on coming up with like a very highly proprietary process. That was a big reason I got acquired. Okay. So this is now, so as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, I differentiate between digital agencies and B2B consulting companies. Here's what I mean. If you look at this as a gradient on one left side, I would call them digital agencies. On the far right hand side, I would call them SaaS, software, or tech companies. I would argue that a B2B consulting company is kind of like a hybrid. And here's why. I'm in conversation right now with one company that is, if you were to use this pure EBITDA number, it makes no absolute sense. I think it's like a 60x EBITDA. I mean, just complete. I mean, mm. it makes no damn sense, right? However, they have a highly proprietary process that basically can do, and they're trying to keep this broad, a proprietary way of doing massive cost savings. They did a pilot at a multi-billion dollar company, a very, we're talking about like the nine-figure company, like $100 billion plus company. And they did a pilot. They showed that using the client's number, they got over, they could say that company over $3 billion. That company turned right around and said, we want to buy your processes for 100, over $120 million. They turned it down. If you look at that thing purely as a headcount and everything, again, we're talking about strategic buyer, right? But to me, that's less of an agency and more of a B2B consultant company. Like most right. agencies are what I call operational work, right? They can help drive a company to growth. It's not the same as a B2B consultant company that's figure out some unique process that literally only they have. Most agencies rarely can say that. So then what I tell them is like, is there a way for you to figure out some small portion of your overall delivery? For example, I'm just making this up, right? Maybe LTV maximizer for the agency's client. You see, like you have some proprietary process to drive maybe double double the value of a client's lifetime value, right? So then you could trademark that or something. So that's where if you, if you look at B2B consultant company, they tend to focus a lot more on their processes. So that's what I tell them. That's kind of like the, the thing you can do relatively quickly, right? Sit down, document your process, communicate that, differentiate that, trademark it, all that. That can be done for several few thousand dollars. So you got to use that, right? All your presentation. I've rarely seen any agency ever do that in a presentation, even agency doing mid 70s, right? They never really talk about a process. So let me just rewind a little bit. Some of the things that they could do to increase the valuation would be to add IP and then trademark it and use it, right? Like actually defend it. Because in, if you trademark something, which I see a lot of people do, they put like a TM and hire a lawyer, but they never use their communication, then it's not really trademark because you're just doing it, just a checkbox, right? If you're going to create something, trademark it, you're going to have to use it in your communication because then people can actually say, hey, those guys own that particular process, right? So that's one. The other one I tell them is, and this is a little bit harder to pull off, is in the agency world, there's a player now called Go High Level. There are SaaS that exists that you can white label your stuff 
which they spent millions of dollars building. So now the market has changed a lot. In the past, if you didn't own the code base, massive red flag, right? But now there are multiple companies. I spoke with one of the founders go high level. There's like five companies right now that's valued over a billion dollars. And there's, they sit on Salesforce's stack, meaning you cannot run their stuff without having Salesforce below it. What does that mean? And what has what does that to do with anything? Well, because if you, now this works better if you're a niche agency, okay? If you're a niche agency, let's pick something a lot of people are probably familiar with, HVAC. If you do a lot of work in HVAC, you could go to go high level, white label that, because at this point, if you work with enough HVAC, you have domain expertise. So you don't have to become a full-blown SaaS, right? But you can become kind of like a hybrid SaaS. In SaaS companies, we all know, tend to have much higher valuation. Right. Now, when they come to look at this thing, they're like, wait a minute. What is this software in here? What is this thing in here? Oh, that's our software. Well, tell me about that. Oh, well, it's a dashboard, right? Specifically for plumber, plumbing companies within this revenue range. And we help them basically monitor Viking metrics, right? But like, well, now you're really differentiating yourself. You're not going to get a default valuation of full SaaS. But now a buyer can't say, well, you're just kind of like a run-of-the-mill agency. No, 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 no. We have this IP. It's still going to be packaged properly, mind you. But it's there, you see? So now you're probably going to have higher retention because it's a SaaS, but also because there's true IP that's defensible, you're going to have that as well. That could probably be done in probably 6 to 12, maybe 18 months. So again, it depends on the buyer, right? If you know you're going to exit in two years, that's something you can do right now. Go high level has changed the rules a lot for people in the agency space. So there's definitely different things you can do, right? So the reinvention is definitely a way to significantly increase the valuation of the business. But as I was saying, like some of the folks that I work with, they're in their 30s. And so because of that, sometimes what's possible may not fit their time frame because many of them want to sell the business and move on to the next thing. I jokingly call it kind of like the three-year, sometimes the five-year itch. So for example, one analogy that I try to use with folks is if you kind of like draw a gradient, right? The left-hand side is what we call the agency world. And in the middle or closer to the software side, would be what I call B2B consulting company. And on the right-hand side, I would call like software, SaaS, tech companies. Now, why do I put the B2B consulting company in the middle? Why is that relevant? Well, what I've observed is like in my own personal experience, when I got acquired, the big reason I got acquired was because we had a proprietary process. In our case, we're an IT consulting company doing software development. We had a proprietary process around doing a particular type of projects online. My hand... It was only worth so much. Like at the time, the biggest client that we landed on our own was probably $400,000, give or take. My acquirer, on the other hand, they were about 10 times our size. And the biggest project they could land was 100000 And even though they had the client relationship, they knew that the, their clients had much more money to spend. They were blocked out of that, out of those projects because they lacked this process that we came up with. So I'll keep this brief and Ron, feel free to ask me to you know, go deeper. But... The idea was like, in our hand, this process only worked so much because we didn't have the client relationship with some of the many companies that they did. So the most for us that we ever made with this on an individual client was $450,000. The acquired had bought us up to the point that they bought us. The biggest project was hundred grand. After they acquired us and they adopted our process, I came on board as a chief technical officer and I infused this into the company. They started winning quarter million, half a million, in six months, they land their biggest client at $4 million. You see, even though that process was worth that much in their hand, I could never monetize that because I simply did not have 
a lot of the things that they were missing. Likewise, even though they had the relationship, they couldn't fully monetize. They could not land the bigger projects with their client missing my process. So that is what I call like something that a lot of agencies can do that they overlooked is really document and then demonstrate that how this is only worth so much here, but in the hands of a bigger buyer, it's worth a lot more, right? So that's why I was saying that B2B consulting company does this really, really well. Now we, I don't know if I already mentioned this earlier, but we're working right now, for example, with a, a small client, a relatively small consulting company, right? EBITDA is like, I think a million, million and a half, somewhere around that range. Yet they turn an offer for a hundred times, almost 90 times that EBITDA. And why is that? Was well, because the acquirer was not interested in what it can do. They did a pilot for a very big company, like over a hundred billion dollar company. And they had data to show that this client could demonstrate that they could save billions of dollars once they adopt this process, set of processes in house. So this consulting company realizes that it's only worth so much in their hand, but in the hands of a much bigger consulting company, it's worth a lot more. So the more IP you can introduce, the more likely you can be acquired by a strategic buyer, at which point your multiple is going to go up a lot more. Because their rationale is like, in your hand, it's only worth so much. But if you can build a business case that in the hands of a much bigger buyer or one that's got more resources, it's worth a lot more, then you have a lot better shot of getting acquired by a strategic buyer. I haven't been involved in too many deals where the agency got bought by a strategic buyer, mainly because they can't demonstrate that it's worth that much of a strategic buyer. A B2B consulting company is more often than not, even if it's not to a strategic buyer, has higher valuation. If you couple that with a strategic buyer, it, it gets even higher. Mainly because I kind of, to keep it simple, I tell people that a B2B consulting company is almost like a manual software company, right? Because they have a proprietary process, they haven't automated. So they're just basically like a, they're like a software company, except it's a process or manual. And so because of that, those things are higher. Now, if the seller is willing to put into the resources, that would be time and money and energy. The true transformation is if they're a niche agency, they take their knowledge of the niche and then they go with the company that go high level or find a development partner and then develop a software product for that vertical. Because the advantages that a lot of agencies have that they discount is do- especially if they're running a niche, is domain expertise. Right? If you work with like over the history of your agency, you work with 50, 100, 200 plumbers, HVAC, take your pick of different verticals you work with, right? Chiropractors, whatever, construction, whatever, right? You may not realize that you picked up, you're in tune with what the pains of the business is because that's what you paid to solve. So now you can basically generalize that and then partner with one of these models. Like again, with a go high level or with a custom software development partner, you can create a vertical specific solution and you don't have to necessarily have the development skills in-house. In the past, if you didn't own the IP, that was a major red flag. Now, because the world's moved so fast, a lot of cars are okay, provided that you can show that there's stability and that there's really strong agreements with the development partner. And the development partner, unless you know they have some weird alternative motive, they're gonna be fine with a new acquirer, especially if the new acquirer is gonna grow it even more, right? So that, that's kind of a development. I think that's happened in the last five to seven years. I talked to actually the founder, one of the founders go high level, who's raised 50, $60 million. And I asked him about that. I would've thought this would be very risky for an acquirer if one of the agencies actually built a solution on top of your platform and said, no, that was true. So if that were true, we would never erase the money out. Right? Come on, right? That's why we managed to raise 50, 60 million because this whole ecosystem is now kind of like evolving. So those are kind of like different gradients 
right? If you have only like maybe six to 12 months and you still want to exit, I would say start documenting your processes, trademarking that, all that. Is that going to like massively increase the thing? No, but it is, it would help you differentiate the market. If you had a little bit more time, then one thing you may want to do is, like I said, and you want to put into more energy and resource, then you may want to look at creating a vertical solution, provide your niche agency, and then partner with a, a company like a high level or basically a, a and there's, I just came back from a mastermind. There are a lot of software development companies that love that because they, what they lack is they don't have domain expertise. So those are kind of like the, I'd say like they're both ends of the spectrum of that, of that uh, quote unquote reinvention or transformation. That's interesting is uh, it plays all the way down to the micro level. I run this podcast and, um, and I buy media assets and media companies like content companies, other stuff. A podcast company reached out like the production company. They produce other people's podcasts. They reached out because they heard me say on one of my podcasts that I run this podcast with one full-time VA, one part-time VA because I created an assembly line that you know, mm-hmm. a process that everything goes through. And I released two shows per week and they're trying to sell their podcast agency. And they're like, it takes us 11 people to manage, <laughs> to put, produce that much content, to do what you're doing. And you're saying you're doing this on one and a half persons plus you. How many hours a week are you putting on? Like, I get on the mic and get off the mic. I don't do anything else. Now, the cool <laughs> news is, is they don't know. We're meeting, I think, next week. What they don't mm-hmm. know is I'm more interested in buying their agency or basically they're wanting to do something else, taking mm-hmm. over their agency growing it and selling it as part of my business or <laughs> part of what I'm doing and part of my whole co than I am teaching them how I did the thing. But we got the meeting based off the premise is like, look, come meet with me. I'll show you a little bit about how, why I did what I did and how I do it. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, it's a combination of Asana and a few external tools that is an assembly line, right? Mm-hmm. I create a list of people I'd like to interview. My VA reaches out and sends them emails. And when you drag it, once they say yes or whatever, you drag it to the next thing, tool actually automatically adds a list of tasks with detailed instructions. So if she ever forgets how to do something, she can click on it, read what I want done, how I want it done, do it. And then she drags it over. When it finally gets to like today, it remove it to record on Restream. It pops up an email to me, says it's already in my calendar. I look on my calendar, I look up on the thing and the people I record today are on there. I have my checklist. As soon as I drag it out of that, it goes back to be assigned to her and gives her a list of stuff to do, and I don't see it again. And I did that with the newsletter. I'm working on finishing that up with the newsletter. So it's an assembly line that goes through. Having a process, like you were talking about, having something that's unique to you, not only will help you be more valuable to sell, but might even open the doors. Like right now, it's given me an avenue to talk to somebody I might want to buy. They want to talk to me because like, how are you managing as much content as you're ripping out? with just a few people to process, right? And I'm not the best at process. If you look at the scale of things, I'm not your, what do they call it, visionaries versus integrator or whatever. I'm a visionary, like 80, 90%. But I created this out of necessity. Like I can't get everything I want done if I don't have a system. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of tools out there. And by the way, if it's not your strength, I mean, Ron, you've done a brilliant job, even though it's not your strength. They're comp- I mean, they're just as you specialize what you do. But I mean, you, I mean, the listener or the viewer, there are teams that this is what they do. And as I said, these are, this is what we were talking about earlier, right? About like what an acquirer looks for. Like when you're doing this day to day, you're like, well, we know what we're doing, right? We have this, but understand when somebody's looking at acquiring the business, they're taking over stuff and you may not be around, right? And that may be your scenario. You don't want to be around. And if you don't have this thing all laid out, well, one of the contingency, maybe, well, you have to stick around. You have to kind of put this on place. And you may not want that. So these are things that you do ahead of time that can increase the value of the business 
or basically attract a wider, a wider array of acquirers. Cool. Let's see here. We've talked about the different way to sell. We talked about some of the things where you need to change or don't change if you're going to sell. We talked about things that go into the valuation and stuff. What are the ways, like, you've been doing this for a while. What are the ways you get the word out, right? What are the ways you market a deal? Do you have a list of buyers you already know that buy these type of companies? Do you have a database? I'm going to rephrase this because we're running out of time. How do I pick somebody like yourself or something that has those connections? Because that's a detriment of a lot of people who sign up for a business broker or an exit advisor is it doesn't sell. And a lot of times I think it doesn't sell because they pick somebody that doesn't have the knowledge of the industry and the connections in the industry to make it move. How do you know who's the right guy to help you get something to move? Yeah, great question. So I asked them, for example, what is their process, right? So back to that, what is their process? What's their procedure? What's their track record? What's their familiarity, right? A lot of time they can have an amazing track record, but in unrelated industries. And this is why we specialize in, like I say, my team and I, we specialize in helping people sell what I call high cash flowing, low asset business. What does that mean? Well, because then we know how to talk to, like, for example, we help our clients exit. We can put them in touch with lenders, right? Understand this business. I can assure you nothing is more frustrating than going to a, like a potential lender, right? Because some folks use financing to buy a business. It's an investment fund. They usually have money already lined up. Go to a talk to a lender and said, Where's your hard asset? I'm like, what do you mean? Well, where's your trucks? Where's your building? I'm like, why the hell would I want to buy a building? That's like such a poor use of my capital. And the lenders are, well, we want to see a building. And you're like, okay, I don't feel like communicating here. When I first started, is I couldn't figure out like what it said. So, well, oh my God, it dawned on me. This is what I was talking about earlier about the brick and mortar, right? They're used to brick and mortar businesses. Like for them, it's all about buildings, trucks, and all this stuff. Well, to me, that's a terrible use of your capital if you're a fast-growing agency or B2B consultant or software company, right? You have none of that stuff. They would, have, they would have no idea how to look at that, right? So that's on the lender side. So when we look at it, we say, okay, these are the type of buyers that are interested in buying this, right? And I'll give the listener and the viewer a chance to reach out to our team. And we don't take on anything unless we feel like we have a very high chance of closing. We intentionally do not want to work on a ton of deals, Right, because we want to have a very high success rate. Because there's all these statistics out there about most deals don't sell. There's a wide reason because of that. And even though I'm representing the seller, I'm being paid by the seller, usually a percentage of the sale. I will be the first one to say, "Look, this is overpriced." I said, "Well, but well, let's go to market and find out." I was like, no, this is what's going to happen. If it's overpriced, no one's going to reply, and it's just going to look bad. You have to revise it downward. There's a sweet spot you could keep it in, right? Now, as a strategic buyer, that range is way wider. But more often than not, you're going to, by the way, my comment earlier about the strategic buyer, I don't want to create an earnings expectation. Out of 100 deals, you might probably get maybe two or three the strategic buyer. So I wouldn't bet on that. Like if it happens, great. But I've yet to see anybody can engineer that consistently. It's really a lot of timing. So anyway, back to tells you that they can do that. That's a red flag. Like if you come to me and say, hey, I want to have a strategic buyer. And that's all I'm looking for. It would have to be very case by case. Right, because a lot of times they may have the funds, but the timing is off. So let's I've work met, out. I've met more than one company where, like, I'm building this to sell to X. I mean, they're actually, they have an exit. I'm building this to sell to Google. I was like, okay, well, at least Google's broad enough that if Google would buy it, there's probably a few other big dogs that want it. But be careful shoehorning yourself into something like that because you could build something to be bought by a company that excludes you from being bought by other people. A good example mm -hmm. is that if you build something and you're using technology that they're using because you hope that they're going to buy you and they're the one-off 
company out there that's using, say, something expensive like SAP or something like that, everybody else is using something else, it's going to hurt you on the sale, right? A lot of people don't get that. Like, it's okay to like build, have a vision. I'm building this because Google's going to buy me someday. Awesome. Make sure that you include the rest of the market and understand that you're not shoehorning it because chances that Google actually buys you, I would buy a lottery ticket right along the side of your dream, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So for us, like, for example, now it's a, like one buyer we were talking about earlier, we're looking at selling to big consulting companies and there's hundreds, right. maybe or a thousand of those. So that's okay. But to say that one buyer is kind of like, yeah. So I think we're on the same page. So for us, it's like, just talk to them, right? Find out like, do they understand your industry? Like if you came to me and even you had the best financials in the world and you had a multi-location brick and mortar, I'm saying, I'm going to do you injustice. I'm not going to have any clue what the margin of this business is. I don't know who the buyers are, right? I mean, just flat out. I'm not, I'm not even going to, like you said, right, Ron, I'll help them by putting the right person. So it's really that as well. It's been them basically admitting that, hey, like for somebody to say, well, I, I want to sell in like 30, 60 days. I'm saying, well, I probably can't help you. I've done deals that short, but I don't want to put myself in that. I certainly don't want to create that expectation for you because you may be waiting for this money for some very big life event. The last thing I want to do is have you play that life event. It could be a summer retirement. It could be some big some big purchase. Or it could be the launch of a new business you need some money for. So our whole thing is like, I'm understand how do they manage expectation, right? Again, I was saying earlier, we represent the seller. But I will put on the buyer's hat very quickly and said, a buyer's not going to go for that. Like I more often than not ask them to have a lower price. Whereas most people in my industry or most people that do what I do, try to bid the price up because they think, well, you're being paid a percentage of sale. And hey, let's get the highest price possible. Yes, within reason. Because if it's too high, nobody wins. You're going to come across as a foolish acquirer if you don't have a sense like what they they feel is within their acceptable risk range. Even setting up a meeting is going to be difficult. Or on the meeting, they're going to say, like, okay, even if they take it, it's like, okay, so what's the deal? Why is this number? And the entire meeting is going to be defensive. Because remember, a lot of buyers, especially investment fund, they see a lot, heck, a lot more deals than the traditional business owner. So there's certain certain procedures that's being done. Do they understand the process? How do they manage the process? How do they market the business? Do they just depend on, like, the reason I travel for a amount and my team travel amount? Because some of the best buyers acquirers tend to be met as we talked about earlier right like you know, do a lot on zoom but there's also a lot of time there's something to be said for being face to face and a lot of time i may not meet the end buyer at a live event but i somebody introduced me to that person and that person has met that party at a live function so there's at least yeah. that connection right so those i would say are some of the you know some of the things but like i said you know familiar in the industry cannot be underestimated that's one reason i chose to just focus on those few industries that i'm in you brought up a good point in there as far as setting expectations. I reached out to a publicly listed company because it's really intriguing to me. And when you publicly list your company for sale at a certain value, like a price, they had a price tag on the website. They wanted $1.5 million for this company. I'm thinking because of the price tag, I know this industry. I know what the multiple should be. You can backwards engineer what they're supposed to be doing. So I get the broker on the phone and I was like, hey, before you even sign, he's going to send me an NDA. I said, just make sure I'm in the right ballpark. You've listed this thing for 1.5 and I laid out. So in this industry, that means he's probably doing XYZ. He's got this many customers and they're like, well, no. Like I said, well, how did you come up with that price? 
that's what he really needs to retire. It's not too far off. He's got this proprietary, this and that. And I was like, okay, just understand that when I get into looking at this, when you set a number that high in this space, you're really setting some expectations of what I should see when I see your P&Ls and your balance statements and stuff. I may not see them for a little while after build rapport, but you're causing a point of contention if you don't put anything else out there about this, right? Because it's a weird industry. It doesn't sell like bulls of EBITDA, like a lot of things that actually, a lot of these high-end content sites and stuff like that, they sell on multiples of revenue because they normally operate at a 75, 80, 90% profit margin. So you're buying on multiples of revenue and it's usually 3X the year. They call it 36X, but it's trailing 12 months on the monthly average. So you're paying 36 to 42X of monthly average mm-hmm. revenue and he's like so, so I, I just come out and said it that's normal in this space like where do you see this and he's like well it's about 72 and i'm like okay it better have some patents and so i'm not talking just like they got a cool right. process right because i can engineer a process you're asking for double what the market nor you know is there's got to be some secret sauce there's got to be some you got a patent pinning or a patent on something that other people you're gonna that they haven't licensed off yet that you're gonna license off or something right and he's like not really we talked to two or three different people they're doing something so fairly unique and it's a great market so basically he was doing it on coulda woulda shouldas right if you do x y and z you'll be making the money to put that multiple in place in less than 12 months and he thinks it's going to sell. And I was like, you're doing this guy a disservice. Nobody's somebody. So I'll reach out. When I got the phone with the broker, the conversation was like, look, I'll reach out in 12 months when you lower the price because it'll still be there in 12 months. Yeah. And unfortunately, in 12 months, if you know it hits any speed bumps, then you know it's only going to be revised downwards. So for us, like I said, we worry. We'll talk to folks that have an interest in this, provide very what we can. But when we actually take on a deal, because of my consulting background, which I mentioned at the beginning of this call together, I treat it as kind of like a consulting project, right? It's got to have a very high success rate because putting a business under just getting getting a client to ink the agreement, we don't get paid until the business sells, right? So therefore, we have to be very careful about who we work with. And like I said, it's not like something you could do like overnight, right? Or even maybe a week or two. It's a fairly long, the, like I said, realistically, as I say, my books and some of the content I created, I plan on four to six months. Have we done it sooner? Of course. But the idea is like all along the way, you're working with the seller and, of course, multiple potential buyers. And so the whole thing has got to be something that you feel that can actually reach completion. If it doesn't, nobody wins. And you've just tied up a lot of people's resources, time, energy, and sometimes their hopes, right? That's the last thing I want to do. So that's the reason why I think what we do is, I think, fairly different. A lot of other folks in our industry, you know, we're fairly tightly niche, right? That's why I started to call it a high cash flowing business, but low asset. Cool. You created something specialist for us, a checklist of some sort. You want to talk about yeah, that? So or? I have a checklist yeah, that I've created here specifically for listeners and viewers of the show, which by the way, it's, it's, been, it's, been, it's been a blast. It's rare I can talk about this at the level I want. A lot of time I talk about more, I don't know what to look for. Like I have to water it down, <laughs> but this is actually allowed me to talk at the level I enjoy. So yeah, we created a checklist, my team and I, at myexitchecklist.com forward slash Ron. So you go there, you're going to have a chance to download a checklist. It's a simple one page or just like four or five things you want to consider when you're looking, when you look at selling the business or in the, right before you look at selling the business, right? And then also once you go to that page, once you grab that, that checklist, you have an opportunity to book a time with me and we'll have a very candid conversation about like what you should do based on what your desires are and also what your outcome you want to be. It could be said your price may be a little too high or no, you're in the sweet spot or 
you may need to have a little bit more track record. We work with companies predominantly between 2 million and 20 million. We have a few deals like 50 million and larger. But for most part, that's a spot that we found as underserved. And that kind of, for a lot of the folks that we work with, kind of what their outcomes are looking for. And there's certain dynamics that happen in that market that we're very familiar with because we specialize in that. For example, what type of buyers are actively looking buying that? Why do people buy agencies versus consulting company versus SaaS company, things like that. And then just once you download that, like I said, that at my check, my exit checklist.com slash Ron, you have an opportunity to book a time with myself, and my team, and we're happy to get on a call, usually 30, 45 minutes, kind of walk you through what you're looking for and how we can help. We can go from there. Awesome. Awesome. One of the favorite ways I like to end this is if somebody could only remember two to three things from the show, what would you want them to remember? What are the key takeaways you want people to remember? Yeah. One thing I did, I also over, I want to really people to think about is this, is you can get to where you go and run your business. More often than not, you'll find if you study people's, if you want like a significant jump in your lifestyle, more often than not, you could probably want to look at selling your business. I could trace, I can cite very high profile folks, or even people you personally know. So just kind of keep that in mind because we've been taught to run, run the business, run the business, save the money, save the money, invest on that. That can be done. More likely you're going to get there faster by exiting. So just consider that as one, one counterpoint. The second thing is also <clears throat> when you do look at selling, consider that unless you're kind of like some massive serial entrepreneur, you're probably going to do it once, twice if you're, I mean, once if you know it's good, twice is extremely rare. I can count on maybe 10, 10 fingers, the people is on the three times. Why is that important? When you're selling the business, it's extremely hard to be objective. Extremely hard. And I've even worked with people that sold their own company before and still come back and use somebody like us. Because when you're selling the business, there's a certain amount of emotional attachment. It makes it hard for you to remain objective, right? So when a seller is giving you just some feedback about, hey, this is why we may not feel this way, and you get defensive, that call can do this very quickly. It spirals out of control very fast. So a lot of time, my role is to help mediate, right? For like a better mm-hmm. word, keep everybody calm so we can accomplish the same goal. Because there could be, there's a lot of money on the line, right? Like I said, most of the deals we do are seven, you know, and eight figures. So consider that this is one of those things that it's probably worth it to bring in this, done this before. One of the things I tell people is this is, I forgot, I didn't mention this in the beginning, but on my own deal, I had a ton of people helping me and everything, but yet, because I didn't have somebody like myself advise me through the process, I had individual players, but nobody kind of quarterbacking the thing to use a football analogy. I ended up leaving $400,000 at the table. And I had a lot of very smart people, but nobody was coordinating the whole thing. So I was trying to coordinate the very smart people, but I've never been in that role, right? right? So you don't know what you don't know. And that's when it gets very expensive, okay? And remember, folks like us, we only get paid in contingency, right? So it's in our best interest to make sure that we make this happen. And then the last one is also understand that this is as much an emotional as is a financial decision, right? Because by the time so they spent years building the business, a lot of this is they equate as who they are, right? So there's some hesitancy or nervousness about the fact that if I do something the business, what am I going to do next? So part of what folks like myself do is we help guide you through that. We have conversation and we may say, well, this may not be a fit for you. You may be one of those individuals where it may be better to keep the business. Right. I always tell people it's not a black and white, it's gradients. Right. And when you don't have enough information about this process, you think there's a lot of times binary, like, oh, it's on or off or black or white or yes or no. 
when in reality, it's usually more gradients. If you want this outcome, these are some possibilities, right? These are like some of the, so that's also helps to work with somebody like myself as well. And it doesn't have to be us, but find somebody like, work with somebody like us that's been down this road before, they could see different ways of getting there. Because if you do this yourself, odds are you probably, like you said earlier, right? You have one particular buyer in mind, or you have one thing that you kind of single, you kind of like this, you have this tunnel vision problem just barreling down. And a couple mistakes here, even one or two, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And you spend years doing this, might as well do it right to reap all the benefits that you put into the business. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for being here today, Alex, and we can call that a show. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now